Welcome back to another episode of Our Seven Neighbors, a new seven-episode podcast brought to you by the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary. My name is Kim Schultz, and I am your host. Thanks so much for listening. We're so glad to have you here. Today, we're looking at intersectionality, what it means, why it's important, and what happens when we don't acknowledge it. Guests include Amira Kahara from Atlanta, Sana Saeed from an organization called Iman, Inner City Muslim Action Network, and lastly, but not leastly, author and activist Salima Abdul Ghafoor. It's an exciting episode. Let's get started. I met Amir Kahar at a bustling iftar dinner last year during Ramadan in Atlanta as part of the Muslim Mix event in that city. Muslim Mix is a hip, trendy organization for young Muslims in Atlanta. I felt old, but nonetheless, welcome. Amir is a smart, driven, and exhilarating young black hijabi woman. I asked her about being Muslim in America, being a black Muslim in America, about the first Muslim woman elected to Congress, and the role of the younger generation. Here she is. I identify as black, Muslim, and woman, and so being an intersectional Muslim, I would say my other identities weigh heavily on that experience, and sometimes they even show up before the ability and task of being Muslim. But I would say it's, it's being all of those parts of myself while also living out my faith, and I live it out into my womanhood and into my blackness. So I feel like they're all intertwined to my identity, and so if my identity is under attack, so is my faith. So I carry it with me, um, but I don't use it to enforce or control anyone else, but to empower and uplift myself and the people around me. So being Muslim can be a negative experience for so many people, but for me it's just a personal journey through life. I think we just want to claim our stake in society. We're different from previous generations, just as each generation before shares. We have technology, and so we're able to connect with each other more on different levels, so that helps. Um, and I think being able to see figures like Ibtihaj Muhammad and Ilhad and Omar in the media and doing work that we want to do and do on a daily basis and have been doing for so many decades and generations, it's a reminder to keep going, to keep fulfilling those roles of, you know, whether you're representing your identity in the Olympic sphere, the political sphere, you know, whatever industry, science, whatever it is, our goal is to continue propelling and uplifting ourselves forward. So that's why I share that part about the conflating identities, because that also is tied into the work that we do. And so I guess just speaking on the example of Ilhan Omar, for example, you know, with her journey and the pushback that she's gotten so heavily, her quest is, how can I liberate people of all backgrounds? And so I think that's what we want. I think we also live in a generation that's big on equality and decreasing inequity. And sometimes that's challenging and sometimes it comes at the cross of one of our identities being, you know, conflicted over ideas or beliefs. But our faith is teaching us, you know, to support the equality of people, the upliftment and empowerment of people, and that there's benefit in, you know, freeing people who are oppressed, even if that means yourself. So what is it going to take for us to get to that point? And I think that's what we're trying to answer in this generation. What was it to see those women elected to Congress last year? Oh my goodness. I was excited. I was happy. And then I embraced that moment and I savored it. And then I said, there are hundreds more like them who are ready to go and we're going to keep going. So I was excited and I was like, all right, 
We got work to do. We're just getting started. <laughs> Have you seen our videos? The Interreligious Institute, in partnership with Shoulder to Shoulder, another brilliant organization you may be heard featured on episode one, went on a Ramadan road trip and talked to dozens and dozens of Muslims and non-Muslims about Ramadan, being Muslim in America, and allyship. Out of that project came six themed videos. If you haven't taken a look at them, do. Lots of good information, stories, and knowledge to be gleaned. You can find them at irri.ctschicago.edu. Next up, I sat down to talk with Sana Sayed. Sana is the Senior Development Manager at Iman in Chicago. She spoke a lot to me about the value and need to incorporate the whole person in this interfaith, intersectional work we do. Let's take a listen. So I am Sana Sayed, and I am an architect, a permaculturist, and a theologian, or I strive to be all of the above. And I work with the Inner City Muslim Action Network as the Director of Development and Strategy. And I, most importantly, a wayfarer in this world. I was really inspired by architecture as a young child. Not only do we as human beings have the power to shape the world around us, but that that world in turn then has the power to shape us. So as we are shaping the world, we are also shaped by it. And I wanted to partake in that and participate in shaping the world into something more beautiful. At some point, life threw some curved balls at me. I did lose my mother and I did migrate and I didn't quite know what I was doing. I was very young when, I, when that happened. And I did experience some struggle and felt that if life was a struggle, then I wanted to struggle for something really good and really worthwhile. And at that point, architecture just didn't feel enough. You know, I studied permaculture, I did biodynamic agriculture, because engaging the earth, and we rely upon the earth, and we are its stewards, and we can't shape a beautiful world while ignoring the very thing that we rely on. So that led me to that. But, you know, the fact is that all of this, and every, as it is with anyone, the whole, all of life, essentially, is a spiritual journey. So I wasn't surprised at some point when I found myself in a seminary studying theology because the only reason I ever ever did anything was God. My North Star was God and is God. And so at some point, there was a moment where I had to sit with that a little bit more deeply. And theology, studying theology was, was part of that exercise. And so as a Muslim woman, what drew you to study? You're, you're a dear friend and colleague of ours at, at Chicago Theological Seminary. And so I'm curious, what, what drew you to study theology with CTS? I felt like I chose CTS, but I also felt like CTS chose me. So I don't know why CTS, uh, except that I think in some ways we just recognized each other. So you work with Iman here in Chicago, which uh, is the Inner City Muslim Action Network. And Iman is a community organization that works for social change, and it uses a lot of different means of getting at that social change, including health and wellness and the arts and uh, a more holistic approach. And uh, I, I'm just telling one of you could just tell us a little bit about the work that you specifically do with Iman. So I'm the director of development and strategy at Iman, but I've also been many other things. The thing that perhaps is closest to my heart that I feel 
I value the most amongst all the things that, you know, all my various engagements with the organization has been what we were at some point calling strategic initiatives, which are really opportunities for mission advancement and innovation. And two of my most favorite ones have been an expansion of the green reentry program that we currently have into something called Weekend Warriors. And the Go Green on Racine project, which is the project that I'm currently working on in Inglewood. So Weekend Warriors was really a holistic program that that was catered to young men who were on the verge of shooting or being shot. And in the heat of summer, when the violence spikes in the city, are left completely unoccupied and and unengaged during those very hours in which they're most vulnerable. And those hours happen to be the weekend hours. So Friday evenings to Sunday nights, when young men really don't have any, you know, especially young men in neighborhoods that lack opportunity and that are as, you know, with shuttered schools and lack of employment opportunities and just parks and with things to do and and essentially exposing young men to great harm in those hours. So what Weekend Warriors did was take take a, a city resource like city colleges and partner with them and with our green reentry program to create a special holistic program that ran from Friday evenings to Saturday nights and engaged young men in a robust program that offered not only some sort of a you know skills training so this year this past year we did uh, welding but also that provided wraparound services so counseling behavioral therapy artistic expression uh, healthy meals and essentially, you know, over the course of a summer from Memorial Day weekend to Labor Day weekend, really set young men up on a trajectory for either a college scholarship or like a college trajectory, which sometimes for many young men, that was the first time they were, you know, having any meaningful exposure to college. And in other cases, it was setting people up for jobs or setting people up for a next, you know, an advancement in that training. So it was a really fantastic program that that was very heartening and and received a lot of support from even the mayor's office. And we're looking forward to expanding that in the years to come. Can you talk to us a little bit about this holistic approach and why the holistic approach is an important one in doing this work? Yeah, I mean, holistic is important because we are whole beings. We're not, we've broken for the purposes of our study, you know, of the human being, we've broken ourselves down into parts and into components. But the fact is that all of these, so to speak, components and parts are integrally interconnected. And we can't really affect any, you know, we can't expect that one aspect of the human being is not going to affect the other. So yes, we do have a holistic approach because we know, and we don't have that because we we did some great research, but we know that in our engagement and encounters with the community that actually you can't ask someone, you can't ask someone who is struggling with diabetes and, and does not have medication to get on a campaign for, you know, systemic change. You can't do that. You have to meet that need of you know, for medicine in that moment or the need for food for a person who has not eaten well in, in days or the need for, for companionship or for the need, you know, the need to engage with another human being and connect over a shared experience. So there's all these needs that human beings have that we all have. And we can't neglect those needs. They're all relevant. They're all important. So it's perfectly understandable where, when in the middle of a campaign, you know, someone is losing energy because they they are 
struggling with depression. And it's perfectly relevant when, when you're doing a food distribution drive and actually someone's asking for systemic change. Both those things are necessary. Both those things are important. And we take like a, we take, an, we approach them from both those angles, the, the, the individual well-being, which is so integrally connected to the, the, the well-being of the community and the society at large. And can you talk to us a little bit about how um, the organization incorporates arts and the importance of arts in this work? So arts is very integral to the work that Iman does because, I mean, it's very much part of its MO because we use arts as a vehicle to, you know, it's not, arts is not a luxury. It is, it is a necessity. It's a vehicle to radically reimagine the world as it could be. It's, it's a means to connecting the disconnected. It's also a a means to healing, uh, to bring transformative healing into very difficult situations. So we, we really value the arts and, and our arts philosophy is that of arts that is spiritually rooted, that is spatially relevant, that is socially conscious. Again, we don't see art as a luxury at all. It is a necessity, just like the spirituals, you know, the breathtaking spirituals. We're not, they were not a luxury of artists just trying to produce something in a you know studio it was it was necessary to to people's survival what would you say are the biggest challenges doing this work in chicago specifically you are located on the south side of chicago as a cts and i'm wondering if you can just speak to a little bit about the challenges you face in chicago specifically i mean chicago has a pernicious history of racial inequity and segregation and redlining and discrimination and it is so pernicious that it has created the largest gap in life expectancy in the country. So you could have a resident of Inglewood and a resident of Streeterville that's just nine miles north, and there's a 30-year life expectancy gap between these residents. And the problem with Chicago is not only that this gap exists even today, but the problem is that we've settled into that, that we've accepted that, that we are okay with that. And Perhaps that is the power of an organization like Iman that is on the south side of Chicago that is willing to place itself in the discomfort of that knowledge and constantly remind everyone that this challenge exists and that it needs to be that we need to do something about this. Why do you do this work, Sana? When I first started going to Iman and when I was a fellow and even when I was an assistant, I would often leave parts of myself out. I would just not bring my whole self into the space because I would feel like that my whole self is perhaps not relevant to this space. But increasingly, as I have done this more and more, and increasingly as I've given myself over to this work and sort of really poured my soul into it, I realized that that it is important that I was born in Mumbai and it is important that I've seen riots and it's important that I've encountered the things that I've encountered in my life. It is important that I'm a woman. It is important that I'm Muslim. It's important that I had an experience when I first landed in this country with an immigration officer who was not very kind, despite the fact that I had nothing, there was no reason for that hostility our experiences are important. And I think this is not something, you know, I think this is also something that Iman values and recognizes that our stories are connected. And people of color and, and people in general, we all have in the repositories of, of our lives moments when we've encountered injustice and we've encountered oppression or when we've experienced loneliness. And we can we can sort of 
dive deep into those moments to find the compassion and to find the the will to meet the challenges that are around us today. So I wouldn't say, I mean, I've had the luxury of of being able to work with communities across the globe. I've worked with people in India, Adivasi tribes and farmers. I've worked with people in Egypt. I've worked with people in Yemen and Sweden and Spain and Switzerland. So I've really... I've really had the honor of being able to engage with a lot of different communities across the world and their challenges. So, and I wouldn't necessarily say that our struggles repeat themselves everywhere we go, but I will say that they might not repeat themselves, but they rhyme. There is a part of the human experience. It's not identical. I don't want to diminish the difference. It's not identical, but there is a rhyme, you know, to our experience. And I do this work because it rhymes with me. Thank you, Sana, for shaping the world into a more beautiful place. After listening to Sana and Amira, CTS faculty member Rabbi Dr. Rachel Mikva had a conversation with Salima Abdul Ghafur. Salima is an author and an activist. She's the editor of the anthology Living Islam Out Loud and consults on a variety of interfaith projects and volunteerism efforts. A frequent presenter on Islam and women, Abdul Ghafur lives in Atlanta, Georgia. And here she is with Dr. Mikva. I'm so glad you're with us here at Our Seven Neighbors. I'm Rachel Mikva, and I'm delighted to have as my conversation partner, Salima Abdul-Ghafur. Welcome. Thank you, Rachel. So happy to be here. So our episode is called At the Intersections, and both Amira and Sana talked about intersectionality in very interesting and personal ways, and I thought maybe we could unpack some of that together. Yeah, it's so interesting because even the term, it's it's a Dr. Crenshaw, she's a you know well-known and prolific scholar in this area, but it's it's I was so happy to see that she gave language to something that we have struggled with for many years and generations. This this idea that we're not just one thing, that we're actually many things, and we meet in the intersection of all of those things. And when we walk into the room as not one thing, sometimes people see us as only one thing. Right. And it makes our other aspects of our identity feel like they've been erased or ignored. Um, and sometimes even internally, the aspects of our identity can come into tension. Absolutely. And, you know, I remember when I, when my, being on my book tour in 2005 and you know, there was this conversation in the American Muslim community of, are you American first or are you Muslim first? And I didn't have the terminology intersection, but I would always say, I'm not going to answer the question because I'm all of it. I'm African-American. I'm a woman. I'm Muslim. This is who I am at all times. I'm all of these things. So I'm not going to answer the question about prioritizing one over the other, because in doing that, you're projecting your perspective and thoughts and feelings on me, and that's not appropriate. Right. And the language helps a lot, although it doesn't always make it easy, right? And so much of it is contextual. So even though we, you know, and Amira said this, she said, I, I, you know, I'm all of these things together, right? Right. And if any aspect of my identity is under attack, so is my faith. But I noticed, so for instance, if we're doing an interreligious gathering, my friend's who are of color often feel like their race has been erased as if it's not significant, as if the experience of being Muslim or Christian or Jewish in America as a person of color isn't profoundly 
shaped by the intersections of their race and their gender and their sexuality, etc. And it's interesting that you raise the point around inside the Muslim community, right? The the other intersections of identity also play out, right? So you have a historical Arab privilege that sometimes in the United States erases the indigenous African-American Muslim presence and voice and power, which is a third of the American Muslim community. Yeah, the, the largest ethnic group of American Muslims are African-American Muslims. Right. And, you know, we, we've been here literally for centuries. And you can see that from slave narratives, that there were Muslims who came as enslaved Africans to the quote-unquote new world. The other thing that African-Americans Muslims do uniquely is that they they bring with them the, all of the traditions of African-American history in the United States. So right. the protest mu- movement, resistance, deep faith, community, transformation, all of those things we bring with us. And, you know, we definitely have problems around racism and gender issues and classism and um, discrimination within the Muslim community. And, you know, in broad strokes, especially before 9-11, you would see this divide politically, culturally, socially, where African-American Muslims voted one way and immigrant Muslims who were largely Arab and Asian voted another way. And the desire, and, you know, part of that was based on also their historical references and and the reasons why and how they ended up being in this country versus African-American Muslims who largely came as the descendants of slaves and many of whom kept their Islam, but also converted to Islam in the last hundred years. You have different experiences. And when those bump up against each other, there can be friction. I love what you said about African-American Muslims bringing in the whole history of of African-American experience in the United States and in particular, the history of civil rights, because so much of our work, which the Interreligious Institute is engaged in, in broad communities and partnerships to combat anti-Muslim bias, learns from, of course, the civil rights movement, right? right? So um, a lot of our work is deeply informed by African-American experience. And, and I'll often find myself in, in spaces with a, a diverse, racially diverse, ethnically diverse group of Muslims. And they'll be like, how can we stop Muslims from being discriminated against and abused? And this, and we say, look, talk to the African-American Muslims, because we already have a blueprint on civil and human rights in this country. We already have a protest manifesto. We have a protest ideology and methodology that you can use. You don't have to recreate, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just work with the people who are right here in your community and we, we can help you with this. I think some of the blindness to the intersections comes from that tendency that Adichie lifted up for us in that great TED talk where she talks about the danger of the single story, right? We have yeah. this single yeah. story of what of what Muslim identity is in America and it's somehow the immigrant experience. And right. we have a single story of what... Jewish identity is in America, and it's this large group from Eastern Europe that came between 1880 and 1920, never mind the Jews from Spain and North Africa who were here before that, or the Jews of color. There's an activist who goes by, right, the Ethiopian Jewish community. Over 15% of Jews in the United States are Jews of color, 
And in the world, of course, it's about half. So one of the things I liked about Sana and her story in thinking about intersections is that she wove in, you know, it's not only about our race and our gender and our religions, these common identity markers, but kind of the whole repository of our lives, our whole journey through life. And these all inform who we are and become part of the intersections, if you will, of what we walk into the room with. Absolutely. I loved um, her just when she talked about the nor- her North Star. And, you know, I love when I hear these very African-American symbols being used by people from other parts of the world who, who have heard them and assimilated them into their experience because it's the North Star is such a pr- profound image to African-American culture in terms of freedom and elevation and expansion and guidance. And um, yeah, the, the idea that, you know, your food, your culture, you know, we talk about bean pies in America. And it's so funny right. because, you know, bean pie is something that if you, if, you know, you're like, oh, that's, it sounds disgusting, but it's delicious, <laughs> right? It's, deli- it's absolutely delicious. And it's something that if you are an African-American Muslim, you know what a bean pie is. And you know that bean pies were something that Muslim women in the 50s and 60s in this country made to earn income, to support their families, and to generate uh, business within the Black community. And we've kept that tradition. But bean pie is a part of my Islam. It's a part of who I am. It is probably the only truly American Muslim food that we have. So that, yeah, so she was was 100% right. All of these things that we pick up along the way make us who we are. So let's think about some of the institutional and systemic manifestations of intersectionality. Kimberly Crenshaw's work talks about some of those, right? So it's not only that we walk into the room as a multitude of, ident- of intersected identities, but also that the structures of power, privilege, and oppression are all interwoven. And so there is no liberation for people of color without there also being liberation for women and the structures of oppression need to be dismantled together, those kinds of things. And then also, and I think this is the more subtle and to me very compelling aspect of her analysis is the way that one aspect of our identity changes the definition and experience of another aspect. So she talks about the experience of being a woman in America It's very different. What does a woman even mean Mm -hmm. if you're a white woman versus a black woman? Mm -hmm. And what has it historically meant? And what does it mean today? Oftentimes, I have been in spaces with black women, and I myself as a black woman have experienced white women who define themselves as liberal as part of the problem. Because the assumption is that I don't have to cover this territory. I've covered this territory. I've arrived. I'm an ally. But In the heat of a moment, you quickly snap back. At Chicago Theological Seminary, in a course I teach called Living Indoor Commitments and Affecting Social Change, we do, one of our sets of commitments is around racial justice. So we do anti-racism training. Mm -hmm. And this is a progressive seminary. And so a lot of the white students come in imagining that, you know, we're not racist, right? But then they study and recognize and learn inside a a diverse community the history of the way that racism has been 
systematically woven into the history of the United States. Right. And that they can't help but be embedded in institutions and participate in racist structures and then begin to recognize how it also has shaped some of their attitudes and behaviors, even if they have also tried to struggle against it and work as allies or accomplices in the fight for racial justice. Because if if we think about it, the projects to transform society for the better are also intersectional. Iman Mm -hmm. is such a great example. Um, Sana mentioned the Green Reentry Project, where they train recently incarcerated individuals, Mm -hmm. give them house building skills that are also related to sustainability in terms of architecture and building materials, right? right? So it's green, it's a re-entry into society. It's youth development, it's job development. Right, and then they they buy up the properties in 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 an underserved and troubled neighborhood in Chicago, and so they do community redevelopment. And then they recently, both with the uh, Weekend Warriors and with other projects, they've made it intergenerational, so that they can really prevent kids from getting into the system. Iman is a North Star um, you know, <laughs> for, for many of us. We, we have a satellite office here in Atlanta. Run yeah. Iman Mansour and have had several cohorts of the Green Reentry Program. And when you talk, most of the people who go through the Green Reentry Program are young black and brown men. And, you know, if, if, if there is all sorts of data around how the system, the educational, political, socioeconomic system is set up to send black and brown youth straight to jail, school to prison pipeline, right. and right. the prison industrial complex. Like the, everything, most of what you find in communities is in that direction. And so what, what Iman is doing is really disrupting this. Your own work is also very intersectional. Do you want to talk a little bit about it? I do. I would love to. Iman actually is one of our key partners. We, we, I am the board chair of the Georgia Muslim Voter Project, and we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan group that's aimed at activating Muslims in civic spaces. So what we mostly work on is registering Muslims to vote and then getting out the vote, because we think it's important that so our voice be heard at, at local, state, and national levels. And one of the best ways to do that is through voting, but also through running for office. No, the only thing that I'll say is, you know, I encourage every person under the sound of my voice to register to vote and to vote. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for speaking with us. Most welcome. And so the work continues. Thank you for joining this conversation and meeting your neighbors. Please share our podcast if you're enjoying it. We would love to help get the word out. Many thanks to Amira, Sana, and Salima for joining us on this episode of Our Seven Neighbors. Find out more about Iman at imancentral.org. And more about us at Chicago Theological Seminary at ctschicago.edu. Find all the links you'll need at oursevenneighbors.com. Please help and donate to these organizations in any way you can. We are grateful, and so are they. Do you have a comment, thought, question, or maybe even story of your own? Call us. We may play your comment or answer your question on future episodes. Let's be in conversation together. The number to call, 773-896-2529.
That's 773-896-2529. Or you can leave us a note on our Facebook page at the Interreligious Institute. We look forward to hearing from you. Next episode, our focus is on changing the narrative. It's very interesting stuff. You don't want to miss it. Join us then for another story, interview, and conversation with your seven neighbors. Talk soon. Talk soon.